Hello, and welcome to Race to Finish, the podcast where we discuss big finish. We're going to have to we're going to have to broaden our uh, our mandate a bit since we uh, might not just be covering the main range from here on. But anyway, today we are still talking about the main range, specifically release number twelve, The Fires of Vulcan. Written by Steve Lyons, directed by Gary Russell, music and sound design by Alastair Locke. Now, Steve Lyons was and still is a darling of the Expanded Universe, and he has written many, many, many books, a lot, and a fair few audios too. And this is a fascinating one for us to talk about today, because I think this is maybe the first big finish release, at least the first Doctor Who big finish release, that is considered an out-and-out classic. It is, yes. So this is the second pure historical for the main range. It's also the very first appearance of Mel, Melanie Bush, in an audio, which is very interesting as Mel was not liked as a companion at this point, to my understanding. That was the general fandom consensus. Oh, yes. Honestly, I think that still is the fandom consensus amongst boring people. Uh, first, sorry, I'm being very harsh there. So I am actually like a Mel Bush defender when it comes to the TV show, but I will mm. be fair. So the thing is that Mel is kind of written off as this really obnoxiously sweet, kind of stupid, screaming damsel in distress at a point where, I mean, the show was still kind of doing them, but they hadn't done one that was that straightforward, I'd say. And to top this all off, she was also in season 24. Well, she was in the season before that too, but she her, full, her only full season was season 24, which is also not liked. I'm going to defend her, though, on a few counts, even mm. on TV. Um, I haven't seen her in Trial of a Time Lord, but I have seen her entire run in season 24. In fairness to Bonnie Langford, who is giving kind of like this panto slightly wooden performance at times i don't know about that she's she's giving pretty much the exact performance that was clearly being asked of her yeah exactly i see remarks that bonnie langford improved as an actress like well matured as an actress between tv and big finish and i resolutely disagree with that because bonnie langford is honestly one of the most experienced performers to have ever worked in doctor who like she was a veteran performer well before she was ever cast as mel like at that point, she had already been a child star. She had she had been in she was in the original London production of Cats, mm-hmm. like Mungo Jerry and Rumpelteaser. I forget which is which, but she was one of them. She was Rumpelteaser, I'm pretty sure. Ah. Whichever one's the girl. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I don't know if I know Cats is something of the butt of a joke, but Cats is an incredibly difficult musical to perform. Like, you have to have solid vocal chops and dancing ability and the ability to act theatrically within that medium while doing all that. It is not easy. And she was cast in that. But I think she also, like, I think a lot of her stuff on TV and the like, like, she started as a child, as like a child star and some TV show I don't know the name of. And she did some panto work, I think. She was Peter Pan. I know that. There's a picture of her as Peter Pan. So yeah, in fairness to her on on TV, like, she's giving the performance that's asked of her, like you said. She's, like, yes, she's giving this, like, oh, I don't understand, Doctor. Like, those are the kind of lines she's given, but it's, like, when you have that with the scripts that season 24 has, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, I love season 24, but also, what are you going to do? 
Yeah, well, as someone who watched all of season 24 whilst high off their ass, I honestly thought Mel was pretty badass in some places. Oh, yeah, there's like it's a like, scene you know, in Time and the Ronnie where she does, she does like a judo move on the doctor. I don't mean necessarily in that way. I mean, like, there's a scene in Delta and the Bannerman where she has an entire bus full of innocent people murdered right in front of her. Yet she still manages to keep her shit together to convincingly lie to the guy who did it who's pointing a gun at her. Like, yeah, on TV, I think I'd describe her as, like, the performance as being a little flat, maybe, if I want to be mean. But also, the character's decent. She just kind of has these funny turns where she just starts screaming and acts really stupid. But otherwise, yeah. she's very proactive, which is very much the case in this. Yeah, we got a bit <laughs> of a sidetrack there, because, um... We were talking about the reintroduction of Mel, and it's like, obviously, yes, you can probably guess from the title, this is an audio that takes place in Pompeii right before Volcano Day. So, uh, for those of you who've seen The Fires of Pompeii, <laughs> they both have the fires of in the title. It's, um, There's a lot of weird, like, similarities between them. They contrast in some really odd ways. I just like to imagine that one reason Tin was in such a hurry to get out of Pompeii when he realized that was where they were was because he didn't want to bump into his past self. Maybe. <laughs> imagine like, I, mean... I, like, I like to joke that there's like this deleted scene where Donna walks up to him and is like, hey, I heard there's two people going around and people say they messages from ISIS. And I was like, um, don't worry about that. <laughs> See, my one issue is that, I mean, I'd love to think that, but my one issue is that the... So the one thing that I really like about this, I guess we should actually start talking about this. I mean, we should, we'll, we'll talk about Mel in a second, but I feel like this is a good segue into this bit. One thing I really do like about this audio is the attention to historical detail. There's a lot mm -hmm. here, like, which is one of the funny things, especially when you compare it to the fires of Pompeii, which I'm not good, which does a lot more to like kind of create similarities between ancient Rome and modern day with like the family and things like that. I mean, I, I love the fires of Pompeii. But I think it is an example of doing history as a set dressing, kind of. Just like, you're just you're just presenting ancient Rome as people in the general public, how they view ancient Rome, kind of. Yeah, I think Which there's is fine. some truth. There is some truth to that. I mean, just look at the character names. Like, in Fires of Pompeii, it's Caecilius, Scintilla, Quintus. Like, those are the names of the family from your basic Cambridge Latin course, which I did in high school. But the character names in Fires of Vulcan, they're actual names that are taken from, like, graffiti and signs and everything that were that were actually found when they excavated Pompeii. Yeah. So, like I said, I really appreciate the attention to detail. Honestly, the, the one thing that I dislike about this, and we'll talk about it more in the spoiler section, is kind of the framing device for what kind of encapsulates all the drama that's happening with the... TARDIS and all that. Yeah, like there, I say you say spoiler section. I I did make a spoiler section for this, but it's not very big. I mean, there isn't that much to spoil. I mean, the volcano erupts. Like massive spoiler. <laughs> okay, yeah. Sorry, this is like Kit Harrington being mad at people spoiling the fact that Vesuvius erupts in that movie he did a few years ago. <laughs> really, no one knew that was going to happen. <laughs> Well, um, I think I had some more trivia to go into. You're talking about the framing device, and um, so I only found this out when I was like doing some little bits of re what little research I do. Uh, there's a unit lady at the start when they find the TARDIS, it, they excavate it in Pompeii, and her name is Muriel Frost. Now, I just thought this was like 
a minor character written solely for this role, but no, turns out she's actually a pretty big character in the comics. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, one... Also, one casting point, because it amuses me, uh, uh, Andy Coleman is a stage name for Andrew Collins, who is an actor who was in this playing... And I forget who he's playing, but throughout, because throughout this, I'm just going to call him Barnabas Collins because that's who I associate him with. <laughs> yes, yeah. excellent Barnabas Collins at that. Yeah. But yeah, Barnabas Collins is in this audio. <laughs> I, I have the cast list up right now on the Big Finish app, and I know who he plays. I, I just don't, I don't remember who that was though. So it's Providius Celsinus, something like I that. I think I think he's the priest. He's the priest of Isis. I'm pretty sure. No, he's not. It's not. He's not really a priest. More like a financial backer. It, it's not really clear. Uh, yeah, I but, thought it was like a mix of both. Maybe that's unclear. Religion and politics were pretty heavily intertwined in ancient Rome, so mm-hmm. they still are. But um, with although with this guy, what I do like you're talking about historical detail and often overlooked, at least in pop culture aspect of the Roman Empire, but that I've always found very interesting is that religiously speaking they were very pluralistic i mean it they will basically worship any god like even from the peoples that they've conquered they it's like hence like the worship of isis and there's this whole minor conflict between that and numachia who's worships the triad of i forget minerva juno and jupiter i think i might have gotten those ones wrong Something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah and that, that kind of comes into play. So there is like an... I mean, if I'm trying to think what how to explain this. Basically, this is like two or three subplots that kind of weave together. And then there's kind of an overarching tension with the Doctor and Mel being in Pompeii and the Doctor thinking that they're doomed for, frankly, kind of stupid reasons. I feel like there may have been a draft of this where that or that conflict didn't exist, and then he was maybe told that this just that it all felt a bit random, like they just landed there and wandered around Pompeii for a bit and got entangled in shit, and so he added it to create some tension. And I mean, it's I don't like it. I feel like I'm being very confusing because I'm being so vague, but I do like Sylvester McCoy's performance because he thinks that they're going to be trapped in Rome, basically in ancient Rome. They'll never be able to leave. I don't know if um, that's quite how it played out. I think I read an interview. I I couldn't be bothered to dig it up because I'm lazy. Where um, but it was basically Steve Lyons said that his problem was writing it is that he had the setup, which is like unit finding the TARDIS in excavated in Pompeii, and where it's like clearly been buried in lava at the time the volcano erupted. He had that setup, and he had the solution, which. I'm not oh, going to say okay. what the solution is just yet because it's a it's a it's a spoiler. It's not a. I don't really care. For it. Anyway, and he had the solution, but then he had everything else as just kind of like a diversion around that. Yeah. Okay. So basically, the inverse and, of what I said, then, which also makes sense. Yeah, and in that, and I honestly don't envy being in that position as a writer. For what it says, I think the diversion works because it puts like the focus on the people of Pompeii and their lives, like right before they're basically about to be completely destroyed. Yeah, and I really do like this one. I mean, 
I think if I were to compare this to the Marianne Conspiracy, which was the last Ooh. historical, I'd probably say that one's technically better. But I also really like this one. It's it's really good, and I really like Mel in this. Mm. I don't think that this. I I read like an article where someone criticized this as basically being this takedown of season twenty four, and it's saying that season twenty four just doesn't work. But I disagree. I think that Big Finish wasn't hadn't really put out anything like season 24 and they still haven't really in the main range or in anything else well the range they they done. kind of have actually well kind of i mean if you're talking about bang bang a boom i'm not sure if that counts and other ranges counts. okay well then so one thing in like three years from this point and also like mel as much as i'll defend her on tv is not the most dimensional character on tv and that's the one thing i think this does really well it doesn't just make her not a screamer it takes the character, and instead of trying to change her, they just give her more dimensionality. They give her depth and opinions and things. So yeah, so I have I had this like written in all caps in my notes, and I'm imagining myself grinning maniacally whilst clutching a dead baby or something while I say it. It's a uh, let's talk about the characterization of the leads. <laughs> it's like yeah, there is that. It's that well is written a lot more restrained than she ever was on TV, and. And like Seven is written as like very tired and melancholic. Like he's not playing the spoons. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure I agree with it as a takedown of season twenty four per se, but I do have it written that it makes me a bit uncomfortable that it seems to reject all the more. I'm going to say camp OTT weird like basically all the bits that the straight people don't like. <laughs> um, Accurate all seems to be absent from here but i'm just gonna say like in the defense of the story if you're telling a story about the fall of pompeii you kind of have to remove those elements if you want to actually get something with an appropriate tone Mm-hmm. i i totally agree i think the one other kind of issue i have with this is that the fact that a lot of people died you know, okay, this isn't actually a problem with it. It's just noticeable because the fires of Pompeii exists. The fact that a lot of people died is feels kind of downplayed. But that's not really fair to it because the fires of Pompeii hadn't even been like filmed or televised yet. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be for about eight years. But because of the conflict in that is about can we like save everyone in Pompeii and the Donna and Donna wants to and the doctor says they can't. And in this, like they talk about it and they talk about how sad it is, but it's just kind of accepted that it will happen. Yeah, I think I did make a note of that. I don't think that's like a negative. I think it's just because the conflict in the story is different. The yeah, like Mel's is in conflict with the Doctor, but it's not because of like the fate of Pompeii. It's because of his despair at their own situation. It's not like Mel is like being callous. Like she does like express concern for like people of Pompeii, but yeah, there's never really talk of like we should tell them what's going to happen and. And there's a very fair reason for this. Like, this is Mel traveling with the Seventh Doctor, and she's already traveled with the Sixth Doctor. She has been doing this long enough that she knows about not interfering with big historical events. Yeah, I suppose I can buy that. I'm I'm sure I can buy that. It's just... It's just, again, something I noticed. It's not, again... It's, again, not fair to it, because Fires of Pompeii, again, haven't been filmed yet. But, again, it just crossed my mind. Yeah, well, it also crossed my mind because I wrote a fair few of notes about it. And it's, um, because they, they do tell help who they can, like, before they 
mm-hmm. run away to the TARDIS to try, well, because they they spend most of this episode looking for the TARDIS because they lose it. <laughs> so they it's like they're already at the point where the Doctor and Donna are at the end of Fires of Pompeii, where it's like, yes, we can't save everyone, but we should at least save someone. But, but because they're already at that point, they don't really have, there isn't really a scene where they sit down and talk about it. Yeah. Because they don't feel and, they have to. And also, the way how the eruption of Pompeii is depicted is very different from the fires of Pompeii, where the fires of Pompeii, it doesn't say this, but it basically implies that everyone died. And this makes it very clear that that wasn't necessarily the case at all. Um, which, I mean, it's still horrifying, of course, but that, I think, adds changes things a bit, too, I'd say. Yeah. We don't actually hear any characters die. There's there's some characters who we can infer that they have died, like um, Moranis and Yamakia, because they're the ones who are just staying put where they are without, you know, while the <laughs> world falls apart around them. But there's like the other characters, like Agley and Barnabas Collins and Valeria. It's um. We never find out what happens to them. It's like they're trying to get out. We don't know whether or not they're going to make it. And that's kind of where it leaves it. And I honestly think that's a pretty good note to go out on for them. Yeah, I agree. It, it's fine. Again, it's just something that crossed my mind. Yeah. You, know, you were talking um, about the Marian conspiracy earlier. And this, uh, this might come across as a bit awkward. I do want to compare this to the Marian Conspiracy because, well, they are, like, the first two pure historicals. But And I, I just kind of want to know why it is that this is, like, regarded as a classic where the Marian Conspiracy, it's not badly regarded or anything, but its reputation isn't as lofty as this one. And I think, to run a comparison of the two, I think one reason is, like, this is a lot more epic I mean, it's about the most famous volcanic eruption in history. There's this ticking time bomb of tragedy looming over the whole affair. But um, one thing I think that the Marian Conspiracy actually does better than this is characters. I just think the the characters in this are a bit more one-note. Even if their motivations are very clear, like Moranis, who's also Dr. Holywell from Phantasmagoria, like... Like, Yumaki has, like, got her own religious political motivation, so, like, we know why these characters are doing what they are doing, but they also don't really change much. Like, um, Agley and Barnabas Collins have sort of arcs where she learns to be more assertive, he learns to be less of a dick, and Valeria also learns to be more assertive. That's like, the villains of the story, for as much as you can call them villains, they're, they're just kind of unpleasant assholes from beginning to end. And yeah, coming after the way the Mary conspiracy handled Bloody Mary, it um, it doesn't feel as satisfying by comparison. But I also don't think this story is about the same things as the Marian conspiracy. Like, that was... That raised a lot of interesting questions about morality and all this other stuff, and it did... I mean, both of them are about faith, but they're about very different kinds of faith, I'd say. Um, So I think it's a bit different in that regard. um, Also, another thing, this is just like my own personal reaction, but I said that I find Marian Conspiracy easy to listen to. 
Like, there's a lot of funny moments in Marian Conspiracy and a lot of riveting character scenes. The mood in uh, this one is very ponderous. Like, there aren't really that many laughs to be had. No, but and, I'd say, despite that, it goes say, at a pretty... It's a pretty tight story, considering oh, I think all the episodes oh, yeah. are under half an hour. Oh, yeah. I, I looked up the runtime. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I actually appreciate more than I ever did how tightly this is written. But... While I can appreciate it, it doesn't necessarily mean I get into it that much. Like, I don't think this is bad. I just think, like, the the more ponderous nature of everything just makes it kind of a slog to listen to for me. It's like, um... Look, it's like, imagine you're looking at an extremely beautiful woman. And, like, you know that she's beautiful and you can see how. But at the end of the day, I'm a fucking homo! Like, it's just not going to do it for me. <laughs> I guess, yeah, that's fair. Like, different strokes for different folks. I, I think if... I do think Marion Conspiracy is better, but I also think if I were to... Depending on my mood, I think I would still pick The Fires of Vulcan over this if I had to pick between listening to one or the other, just, like, for fun. I think I'm the reverse of that. I actually think this might be better in the sense that it's a bit more tightly written, but... I, I prefer the Marian Conspiracy. I suppose, but it's also Conspiracy. like, I mean, this is a lot less quotable than the Marian Conspiracy is, I'd say. Like, there's a oh, lot, yeah. like, like you said, there's a lot, it's very somber. Yeah, although I just want to say, the cliffhanger to part three, one of the best moments Big Finish has ever done. Like, even when I was kind of like, no, scribbling away at like two in the morning listening to this thing. I, I was like one of the moments where you have to stop for breath. It's just like this unnatural calm right before the pyroclastic flow hits the fan. It's very it's very effective, yeah. Maybe we should like I know that we're we're being pretty loose about this, but let's just say let's just go into the spoilers now, I suppose. Well, no, I think there, was a, there was this one bit I wanted to cover first. Oh no. Oh, okay. Okay, so culture shock. There's, um, so I talked about culture shock with the Mirren conspiracy and how Evelyn's on the receiving end of a fair bit of it. And something similar happens to Mel here. It's like, she's immediately accosted for not having her head covered. And then, of course, there is the, I say there weren't any laughs in this, but we do get, is this province of vegetaria far from here? (laughs) (laughs) And then it's like, she watches an animal being sacrificed and it's like, yeah, this is just, like, un- unsettling for her, but... I mean, then there's, like, the bit with the Lupinar, which um, I'm a bit more uncomfortable about, because... Okay, the culture shock here is happening to me. Not because, um... Not because I'm very different from ancient Rome, but more because New Zealand in 2021 is very different from the UK in 2000. Okay, so... In 2003, New Zealand passed this thing called the Prostitution Reform Act, and since then, sex work has basically been legal for, well, everyone except for temporary visa holders. That's a whole other discussion. But the same can't be said for basically every other English-speaking country. Now, both this bit of legislation and myself, like, draw a distinction between voluntary sex work and coerced or human trafficking but there's a cultural tendency to lump them all together and treat them like they're the same thing and i'll often use that as an excuse to be unbelievably awful to sex workers 
and like with um, the character Agley's situation in this, it it's not really comparable to voluntary since she, she is literally a slave and like she is employed as a sex worker by the woman who is effectively her owner. Although Mel's reaction to this makes me uncomfortable as she puts emphasis on Agley being made to prostitute herself as if that were the bad thing rather than the fact that she has no real say in it. Like, I can maybe... I mean, that was kind of the impression I got. At least that's I can how maybe I chose give to the benefit of the doubt, but I think it would be optimistic given that this was written by an English guy 20 years ago. Like, this, is, this is just like my own... Oh yeah, I'm sure that the writer didn't intend this to be okay but i can still read it or choose to read it as being less problematic than that i mean i honestly think i might be overdoing it a bit but i thought it was like it was minor i mean i will say the constant culture shock that mal experiences after a point got on this listen anyways got a little repetitious but it's like she's like i can't eat lying down it's oh mel you would hate me Okay, now we can do spoilers, sorry. Yes, okay, so I just thought, because you brought up the sex work thing, I do want to just say, one thing that gives me a laugh every time I listen to this is the scene where Mel stumbles onto a brothel with Adelaide. Or- Agley. Agley, excuse me. But, and she stumbles onto a brothel, and she figures it out that it's a brothel because there are pictures of dicks on the sign outside. But she doesn't say that. <laughs> but the contrast of this character and dicks, or pictures of dicks, is just weirdly funny to me. <laughs> So it's not that weirdly. Funny. Oh, and then she spots yeah. she spots like Barnabas Collins looking at her, and so she's like, "Oh no, we need to get out." And then she's like, "Oh no, I may have given the wrong impression. Like the local creep makes a beeline for me, and what do I do? Go straight first into the nearest brothel." <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, I guess we should probably talk about the conflict or the main overarching conflict. As we said, it's the TARDIS gets excavated in 1980 from the ruins of Pompeii, and uh, the Doctor found out that this happened and was like, oh no, so at some point the TARDIS is going to end up stuck, is going to end up in Pompeii where it's going to get trapped by the eruption. And now you s- now he doesn't, now it's like, um, there are several solutions for why this might happen. It could just be that the Doctor decided to retire to ancient Rome for a bit. <laughs> like he even notes this himself. It wasn't didn't necessarily mean that he was doomed to die in Pompeii. But when he arrives there with Mel, he's like, "Oh no!" So he thinks like we're we're condemned to lose the TARDIS now, and even if we don't die in the eruption, yeah. we're going to be stuck here forever. Yeah, so here's my issue with this. And my issue is that the solution is, like, really obvious. It's, it's something that, like, the Doctor should have figured out. There's also, like, no reason to assume that. There's so many. There's also just so many ways to get around this, even without this be- the solution that they go for being the solution. Literally what they do is they go into the TARDIS, they just let the lava solidify around it, and then they dematerialize and materialize in the empty space that, that they left, like, thousands of years later for them to be excavated. That's what happens. Mm. That's it. I mean, it's a clever solution. Like, I'll give the writer that, but on, like, a in-universe level, it's very strange to me that the Doctor is like, oh, this is it. It doesn't ruin my enjoyment of the story that much, but it is a little distracting when those scenes occur. Well, I like to imagine that at least part of it is because while the Seventh Doctor is written differently than the way he's normally written in Season 24, uh, 
he's still not quite the master manipulator he was going to evolve into. So, this is like him being confronted with a situation he can't quite grasp onto just yet. And this is how he deals with it. And he's, he's just, no, he's just not sure how to deal with it. So, like, he improvs a solution at the last minute. Which... See, I don't really buy that because well, there's signs of the master manipulation. I see, like, there are signs. Like, he hypnotizes a guy, yeah. And but... he also convinces Agel, or... I'm, I'm just going to keep getting her name wrong, I'm sorry. But she convinces, he, he convinces the slave girl... Aglay. Uh, Aglay to... Uh, Aglay, there, I did it! Woo! Um, to go and find Mel and, like, disobey her her mistress. So, those feel very seventh Not necessarily, like, inspiring rebellion is very doctorish in all their iterations but true i suppose but yeah fair it's enough. like he, it's just he doesn't feel like much of a manipulator to me here he feels like he's improvising and i just like to imagine that maybe going through this kind of helped spurred him to become that you know so he wouldn't end up in this kind of situation i mean yeah that's a nice that's a nice fan theory i, I can i could definitely def- jump on board with that i just think i just don't it just bothers me because even if we just, even if we assume that for whatever reason, the solution that they go for isn't feasible, there's still not really a good reason why he arrives in Pompeii this time and is like, oh, this is it. It's the end of my travels. Because he already, because like, he already, like, he outlines a bunch of other reasons about why the TARDIS could have ended up there, but apparently he's just decided that he's going to be, like, he's just going to, it's going to be a tragedy when it happens. So. I think Mel goes, maybe we should just go back to the TARDIS, and he's like, mm, perhaps you're right. So they go back, but they find that it's been like covered by an earthquake, so it seems. So the Doctor's like, oh no, history's already conspiring to force me to stay. Okay, I suppose that's fair. Yeah, I, I, I didn't really interpret it like that, but that's totally understandable. Yeah, because he, he's already pretty kind of resigned to it in the first episode, really. Um... But yeah, that's my one issue with a story that I otherwise think is pretty great. And it's a shame because it's what a lot of the conflict is built around. But, you know, fine. I love the rest of this. So it's it's yeah. it's not it doesn't. Ruin I think it the reason me. that doesn't bother me so much, like it might have used to. But then I read The Witch Hunters. OK, I got the audiobook. Look, OK, so I mentioned that Steve Lyons wrote many, many, many books and one of those was The Witch Hunters, a Doctor Who novel. It's compellingly written and well-researched on a par with this, The Fires of Vulcan. And I utterly hate it. Um, I hate it because it embraces fatalism to a point where the Doctor's not only condemned to watch as a historical atrocity plays out, but he personally intervenes to ensure that a woman will be killed when it looks like she will be spared. Like I think it, I think it handles its theme well, but it, it's also a theme that I hate. It's, it's basically a complete abdication of any kind of responsibility. History is fixed, and nothing can be done about it. And even if it's your time and your choices that are making history, then someone will intervene to counteract them, because like, I mean, this I consider an improvement on that by a lot but not just because the doctor manages to outwit history at the end i mean i do like that beat but it's like it's hard to give it so much credit because the format of the show means it's inevitable but again it's like the leaving the fates of the characters ambiguous and i dare say optimistic it's 
like there's like there's some lines near the end where it's like you had hope sometimes that's the most important thing of all it's like and like, i prefer to believe the best until we see proof to the contrary and of course the classic it's only cheating if you get caught so yes, the is, reason um, I may be more positively inclined to this than I used to be is because I consider it a considerable advance from some of Lines's earlier work. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into this because I, I could just go on a really even more off topic and even more than usually confusing rant about this. But before I listen to this, I read Elizabeth Sandifer's review of it. She hates this. Um there's some interesting analysis in the piece, but I think that her reasons for hating it are really bad. And a lot of it is just based on the fact that she really hates the witch hunters. And she feels that it's the doctor trying to justify the Salem witch trials or something. I, I didn't really get it. I sympathize that, hating but... the witch hunters, but... Um, oh, yeah. Fair I, enough. Like I said, the witch hunters actually made me view this more positively, so... Yeah. yeah, which is why I bring this up. I wasn't going to. It's not like a. It's not like I'm not saying that like oh she was totally wrong in everything she wrote. But I had issues with that particular article. But I'm not gonna get into it. Um, yeah, it's interesting you say that. I've you're the second person now that I've come across who really doesn't like it. So and it sounds like for good reason because that just sounds really. Well, in some ways, it's a brilliant book, but it's like I, I would not recommend it to anyone. It's like if you think this was a slog to get through, like. <laughs> Mm. I honestly think this was de- that this one's decently mm. paced. I mean, when I say a slog, I don't mean in terms of like shoddy construction. The construction in the Witch Hunters is actually very interesting, and I think it's actually really good. It's just that the actual content is just so. Oh my god! Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, weirdly, it didn't bother me in this. I I guess it it did enough mm. to uh to hold my attention regardless. Mm. Um, hang on. Oh, just one, like, random little note. I'm just going to point this out for funsies. This is yet another Seventh Doctor story where he's referred to as a little man. Mm. Yeah, Moranus was bested by a mightier dwarf. I wonder if yes. that I wonder if that bit of graffiti was actual graffiti that they found in Pompeii and Lyons decided to work in a bit with the Seventh Doctor gets into a fight with a gladiator as a result. You know... I'd buy that. I would 100% He's buy not that. even that tall. He's like 5 foot 7 in ancient Rome. Wouldn't that be like normal? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know. It's Sylvester McCoy is short and every and ergo every other character in every audio drama is thus taller than him apparently. <laughs> and again, like you said, he's not that short. I'm like 5 foot 8 or 9, so he's 2 inches shorter mm. than me. It's not short. Uh, hang on. Oh, I, I do have one funny joke, and I did find it very... Just funny that, like, Moranis got killed because of his own toxic masculinity. Oh, yes. Basically. Hmm. It's very satisfying. Well, we don't hear him die. <laughs> no, but it's implied. Like, yeah. he, he so he's saying that he refuses to leave because he's, like, a gladiator champion of the gods and shit. So, final thoughts? <laughs> the Fires of Vulcan, probably the first true classic produced by Big Finish, at least in terms of fandom consensus. I, I'd say the f- actual first classic is the Fearmonger. It's good, it's solid, believe the hype, more or less. It may not be for you, I don't think it's entirely for me, but I still get a lot out of it, so... 
Yeah, sure. Why not? Go for it. Next time, the shadow of the scourge. Yes, and my final thoughts are that basically the same. It's I really like this actually. I've I've um it's been a few years since I listened to it, but there was a period where I was listening to this very consistently for like three or four years. I listened to it at least once or twice a year for whatever reason. It's a good listen. I've complained a lot about the main conflict, but putting that aside, it's great, and it's not even that big of an issue, really. So, check it out. It's it's a good time. It depicts ancient Rome very well, which I always appreciate. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this. If you want to get in contact with me or Carrick, uh, my Twitter handle is at dmanity. Carrick's is at Carrick of the Ord. You can contact us at the podcast's main handle, which is at race who. You can also email us if you so choose, which no one has, I suppose, understandably, at racewho at gmail.com if you want to share your thoughts about any specific uh, releases that we've already covered or that we're going to cover in the future. It'll be, be interesting to hear people's thoughts. Um, yeah, thank you for listening. <laughs>